Michael McMullen, this is the World Snooker Tour podcast, and this week my guest is someone who I think it's now fair to describe as the long-serving chairman of the WPBSA, Jason Ferguson, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Michael, pleasure to see you. Now, long before you got involved in snooker politics, you were a player of a pretty good standard, actually, on the professional circuit, but a lot of people might not remember that now, so what sort of a career did you have? Well, you, you, you're going back a long way now, of course. I mean, well, many people don't actually realise yeah. I, I used to play. But yes, I, I started life as a, as a snooker player and it was all I really knew. I, I grew up in a mining town and as such, there were always, you know, clubs and welfares and things like that where, where snooker was played and leagues, local leagues. So I, I grew up in and around playing snooker. Uh, I was 21 when I turned professional and uh, I had 14 years playing on the World Snooker Tour four of which I spent serving as a volunteer, as a director, representing the players on the board of the WPBSA, its governing body. Um, and uh, it's been an interesting life, and I love this sport with so much passion, and uh, it's just great to be around it still. Yeah, and during your career, you got to the last 16 of 10 ranking events. Now, unfortunately, you never actually managed to make it to a quarter final. I wonder all these years later, is there still one of those 10 that haunts you, and you think, that's the one I should have got to the quarters? Ah, good. You know, I, I suppose there is. I, I remember losing to Quinton Hahn in the, I think it was the UK Championship. No, I'll tell you, that was the Grand Prix. It was the Grand Prix. And it was, was actually it? the See, last of the going. 10. And you were 3 1 up, I seem to think. Yeah, to remember. I, I remember. It's funny how these little things, you know, just stay in your mind all the years. And I remember missing a black thing, you know, to go 4 1. And at that time in my career, I was kind of finding my, I was starting to find my way. The problem with me, I, I got distracted, really. Politically in the sport, the sport was going through turbulent times uh, politically. And I, I guess I was one of the few young players, as I was, as I'm a bit older now, I was a young player at the time. And it was one of those players people kind of looked to and said, you know, we should get involved. We should, you know, we need to change it. And it was actually Terry Griffiths who, who eventually asked me to join the board of the WPBSA. Um, and yeah, I think that took me away from playing. I probably had a lot more left in me as a player. Um, uh, do I regret it? No, I don't. I think um, I think I've been very blessed in my life. It was a very different time in the game, and it was a very different role back then, wasn't it? Because WPBSA chairman in those days meant controlling every aspect of the sport. Yes, we we, we controlled everything, and during that four year term, I you know I'd kind of worked my way through and become vice chairman, and eventually served a short a short term as chairman as well. One of the key things that I wanted to do and did do at the time was get involved in developing the sport in Asia. Um, really started in and around Thailand when we had our first ranking event there. But from Thailand, we, we, we created opportunities for players from all over Asia to actually train. Eventually, those players came to England to train under our uh, system and, and what we were working on. One of those players was Ding Junhui. And China, for me, even back then, was always going to be a very big market for snooker. There was a, there was a real passion for this sport, and there still is in Asia. Um, and I think we are really only just scratching the surface now of what, what I think the sport is capable As of. we'll discuss in more detail a little further on. But your experiences of snooker politics didn't turn you off politics altogether because you got involved in it in a more real-life sort of way, I suppose. Yeah, it's... It's strange, isn't it, how the, the, the way your life goes sometimes. You know, I, I grew up in a school in, a, in an area that was, you know, it was, I was so far away from going into the kind of things I went into later in life. And I, you know, I was shy. I wouldn't say or speak. I would never put my hand up in class. And even, even when I was playing snooker as a young player, I was so quiet. Um, and I, and I, had, I had one good friend 
who who was a property developer from London who owned this local snooker club. His name is Ray Schilling, and he he saw something in me in terms of you know um, as a player, but also helped me in in many things. He taught me how to read a balance sheet. He taught me how to run a business. He he taught me how to speak in public, and he taught me so much and. You know, I'm I'm so thankful. It's the people you meet along the way, I think, that that steers your life. And and later on, when I actually left snooker, I, I had a, a small business of my own. I had things that I was going on to, but because I'd been in that probably quite political role at the WPBSA when I'd come out of that, I, I you know the opportunity to do other things was there, which perhaps weren't there when I was younger. And and Ray Schilling, my my good friend at the time, uh, and still is. He said, oh, you should join the council. Come and join the council with me. And I eventually ran to to be a a, a town councillor in the town where the snooker club was, where I was spending my time growing up. Um, And at which point I eventually went on to serve a term term as the town mayor. Mm. Um, And I really enjoyed it. We we did so much in a a town which I guess at the time was dying through the, the closure of the coal mines in the area. We actually transformed the town, and in fact, it got voted most. I think it was the something like the oh, most entrepreneurial town in Britain, or something. At one time, it was it it had, it, had, it had really lifted in terms of the amount of employment in the town, it, and it gave me real insight into into governance, politics, and this type of thing. And again, we're always learning in life, and I, I've been very lucky to be given the opportunity to learn. And speaking of entrepreneurs, Barry Hearn came in and took over the game around about 2010 and brought you very much back into the fold then as chairman of a very different WPBSA. Now, what was the brief, Jason, coming into the job as you saw it? What did you see as your mission in that role? It's funny. I mean, Barry called me. There I was at home. I was still serving as as the mayor of my town. I was running my own business and uh, doing some property development and things as well on the side. And and the phone went. I was sat at home, and uh, I hadn't been well actually. I'd, I'd had a, um, a bit of skin cancer, and I'd just come out of hospital. and And I was sat at home thinking, oh, I was feeling a bit down. The phone rang. It was Barry Hearn, and he said, "Jason, what are you doing?" I said, "Well, you know, I've got things I'm doing." He said, "Oh, we should we should talk." He said, "I'm back at World Snooker." He said, "I'm I'm, I'm chairman of WPSA, and we're going through we're, we're planning to go through a major restructure, and apparently you're the man to come and help." He said. And what really a conversation over about 10 minutes, we, we kind of hit it off straight away. One of the things we talked about was World Snooker, the company that Barry took over, was a company I'd been party to setting up in my first term as chairman. I tried to, you know, break the sport up as it is today uh, back in, I think, 2002. So, you know, going back some time, the structure's been there. But it, nobody really got hold of it and really allowed that structure to develop. I guess it was a little bit of fear to let it go too far. Would we lose it? Would we lose control? Will it? Will it? Will it die? You know. But with with somebody like Barry at the helm, um, he took over as chairman of World Snooker. I can I took over where he was sat as chairman of the WPBSA, and then took the players through an extraordinary general meeting process to allow the structure to trade properly. It was never really even in the darkest of political times was never really the people that were the problem. It was actually the structural problem allowing it to grow and develop. But it needed that vision and it needed that entrepreneurial guidance that that Barry uh, brought to the table. And Barry really was the right man for that job. 
he he came in very quickly. Um, I first I, I'll tell you a story because we have time. First few weeks are back in back in this role. Barry and I set off for three weeks in Asia. We we took off. We met at Heathrow Airport. We barely knew each other, I suppose, we, although we'd met a few times before. Uh, we set off there. We sat together on the aeroplane. We're three and a half hours out from Heathrow Airport, and we and and we lose an engine <laughs> on the plane. And and if you ever wondered what kind of, kind of character Barry is, this was the telling moment when I knew I was going to be in trouble. I was going to be probably going to be around for a long time. He's he popped up behind, but from his chair, and said. Jason, let's have a glass of champagne with a big smile on his face. You know, it, it was kind of, wow, this kind of thing happens every day. We turned back. We flew back to Heathrow um, on one engine. We landed the plane, had some lunch, got back on the plane three weeks in Asia. We did China. We did Thailand. We did uh, the Philippines. We, we, we did the rounds of meeting and picking up old contacts, many of which Barry knew and some old contacts of mine. I think we returned from that three weeks with probably more work than even we could ever have imagined that we would have on our table. Um, and I really started to work hard on China from that point. And did he give you any indication as to what he expected of you, what he saw as your responsibility? Well, when we, well, the, the thing was, when we, when we actually wrote what was, what was classed as the share purchase agreement, it was the, the, breakup, the, the proper breakup of the company allowing it to work, we actually wrote those documents together. So it was actually a case of, you know, he knew what he needed commercially and was very clear and precise about that. He also knew what he needed the WPBSA to do and was clear about that. But I knew deep down that the WPBSA could become a real drive to help when this sport develop purely from what we'd done in Asia in the early days. And I knew if we got the governing body side right, I knew it could lead in terms of sports development and I knew it could go into territories that perhaps commercial operators couldn't go into. I knew we'd be able to develop with governments quite closely as an official governing body in the world. And really, as it's transpired, I think things have evolved from that original, those original documents. But Barry, Barry was, um, he was just, um, he's fun to be around. He's entertaining, everybody that knows him. He's extremely intelligent. Um, and the thing I like about him the most, he is totally honest and transparent. He not only is a great operator, he does things properly. And when it all comes down to it, really, you talk about developing the game, Jason. It's about participation, isn't it? Because that's the lifeblood of any sport is people actually playing it and taking it up. When people talk about that, I think what's often missed is that there are two different stories going on there participation in the UK, which isn't what it was 30 years ago, and participation around the world, which in some areas seems to be growing all the time. So it's two very different situations you're dealing with there. It is. And I always kind of use the World Championship as a, as a, as a, as a great one to describe it. You know, if we look back at Dennis Taylor and Steve Davis, 1985 final, 18.5 million viewers on television. You know, people that watch it may take up the sport. So let's, you know, we'll start with that position. You know, if we look at the World Championship today, hundreds of millions of people are watching worldwide. And whilst, you know, we may not think that participation is what it was, competition is much greater. Young people are now on computer games and iPads, things that didn't exist. So it, it is tough to keep that, um, that, that going. But what I will say is, in the last two years, despite the difficulties, I'm seeing an upturn in participation in this sport in this country. And it's interesting watching it. I'm seeing an upturn in the number of quality snooker clubs that are out there. 
and I'm seeing more family friendly places where people can go. We've trained, we've started out when I, when I go talk about the sports development and the things that are going on on the ground, we, we, we had, I think we had something like 10 or 11 coaches because we only really used to train professional players into coaches. It was kind of a secondary career for some players. But actually, as we took over with the, with the WPBSA under the new structure, I wanted to open this game up and create a whole, you know, a whole field of people out there who could go out into the market and develop the sport. So we've hundreds of clubs out there. Um, and many of those clubs have got resident coaches. Some have got more than one. Those clubs are running junior clubs on Saturday mornings. We've seen some great activity in this in this sport. And I think for the first time ever, I'm seeing an upturn in clubs. Yes, some of the old clubs are dying. They are. But actually what, what's happening is newer, bigger, more family-friendly places are opening or old clubs are being renovated into that. I think it's a very exciting time for snooker. And we've done all this without the support of the government funds. When you look at the, what, what goes on in many other sports where, where there are grassroots funding projects available, we have not been able to have that luxury in snooker. We've done it from driving commercial gain in the sport at the top end and taking 26% of that income, driving it through the WPBSA into development projects. And that, I think, eventually will change the face of the sport. One person who feels, Jason, that snooker has a bit of an image problem now, particularly among young people, is the 2019 world champion, Judd Trump. And he's been on here actually talking about this. I'm sure you're aware of the comments he made around the time of the world championship this year. So do you think he had a point? And if so, what can be done to address the issues he raised? I think everybody has a point. I think everybody you know, has a different opinion. I mean, I have children of, of an age of around you know, 15 19, 21, and I have a very young child. But but actually, through, throughout those those ages, I, I always look at my own children and think, what are they into? What do they want to do? What are they watching? What are they doing? And the one thing I've, I've realized, some of the comments Judd made are valid. And I think we do need to constantly keep looking at the image. What do our events like? Moving from an arena where we had lots of small cubicles with tables in into an open arena like we're sat with the luxury of today, has created more atmosphere. These subtle changes can improve the image of the sport. And it's it's a case of doing it a little bit at a time. In terms of dress code, I know Judd made many comments about the dress code. I actually think it's going the other way. I'm finding that, yes, people don't buy waistcoats to go um, playing football in or going out with their mates. But actually, I'll come back to the point again about my own children. They like to dress up. They like to wear suits. I'm seeing this in young people. What happens in school when they when the final end of year prom is there? People cannot wait to dress up, look nice, feel smart. And I think, you know, we are unique in a sport where you can actually go to work in something that you would go out to a dinner or a dancing or something like that. I think it were very unique in terms of our uniform. What I do know about that globally is that sells the image of the sport, this this uh, evening dress it does sell in terms of overseas. It does go down very well in China, particularly. They really like it there. It does. Etiquette is a big thing with the sport in China. I've had many attempts at trying to sort of put school programs in and things in China. And we've done some things around mathematics and not really taken off because already a lot of the children are very advanced in mathematics and things. But what we found is that the the school teachers and the universities, they're saying, actually, we love this sport. Concentration 
immaculate dress. We want that in our children. Um, etiquette, sportsmanship. There's no sport like it, I hear. This is, what, this is what people say. So I think to walk away from the traditions that we have would be a mistake. However, subtle changes and bringing in series of events with different dress codes, etc., which you're seeing some of now, that works. And what about short matches? Because there's been talk about the British Open going to the best of five, and we've seen a gradual move towards best of sevens and things like that in recent seasons. Is that part of it all, in, in your view, that tournaments should offer different things and perhaps have more of an identity distinct from each other? Yeah, I think we certainly need to have a variety. The one thing we know, the, the growth in, in world snooker as a tour was exponential over the last 10 years. Um, in the, with the addition of all the new China events, with the addition of working overseas in Europe and so on, we've added events year on year. We were up to, I think, 28 events, major events. The thing we know is we can't do 28 events all the same. We have to break that up and create series, uh, create um, the Triple Crown. We know the traditions of the sport go, go very deep in terms of our sports history with our world championships. You know, that those, those things are what they are. They're, they're historic. But the move into the, the short frame formats is, is not something for, for every event. There is a place for it, but there is not a place for it to rely on it for all the events over a long period. Um, this year is a little bit different, of course. We've just come out of lockdown. We've come out of some what are very challenging times. It's a miracle, really, what's gone on in snooker. We've managed to deliver, believe it or not, 20 major events during lockdown. Um, coming out of that, delivering the first major world championships with a crowd in. Fantastic. But actually, as we come out of that, it's challenging. Everything is still challenging. There are still restrictions in place. We still need to be extremely careful what we're doing. And of course, we've only got a finite number of time in venues and so on. So there are going to be some pains in the current year. Short Short formats are not here to stay for all events. They may be here to stay for one or two events. So the concerns that people have then, that there isn't another generation coming through, certainly in the UK anyway, to take the place of what's there at the moment, you feel people might be pleasantly surprised? I know they will be. What I, what I do know is that there is an age gap. Um, the one clear thing that came when I came back to this sport just over 10 years ago is that there wasn't that development arm going on behind. Yes, the, the voluntary systems were, were running, you know, the amateur events and so on, but real sports development was not going on to the level it needed to. What that meant was that at that time, people were not coming into the sport. But over the last 10 years, people have been coming into the sport. That 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old has been coming into the sport. And we are now, for the first time, starting to see some of those young players break through and start to make a name for themselves. I think in another two or three years, that talent will um, will certainly come through at a higher level. Um, and we've had, you know, look at, look at the players on the tour. Some of the youngest players we've ever seen are actually coming on the tour in the last, what well, have arrived on the tour in the last two years. Now that's through that development work and providing those opportunities. You know, Julian Boyko, you know, he was 14 when he qualified for the tour. I mean, it's incredible, really. So, but, but that age gap is there. We've still got the John Higgins as winning events because they're still good enough, you know, which must be really annoying for some of the young players. It's amazing the career that, that, that some of these players have had. Um, and we do know it's tough. We do know it's tough out there mentally, this sport is incredibly tough. Um, it must be the most torturous sport mentally out there where you have to sit in that arena and watch your opponent 
um, when you've made a mistake. It, it's it's an incredible sport mentally. I think the age of players and the distance they go is down to the fact that they are they are mentally so strong and they get stronger by continuing to compete at that level. It's all about opportunity. We're going to see young players come through. In England itself, the English Amateur Championships have finally been back on. We've seen a relaunch now of English Amateur Snooker. There's going to be nearly 40 events as a minimum take place in terms of what I would class as the old-style prime events. These these events are open, open entry. Men, women, old, young, doesn't matter because the if you want to be the best, you have to play against the best. These are amateur-level events. They'll be taking place in clubs up and down the country. That is going to drive the young talent into these events every weekend. That is what's going to drive the standard. I guess, though, when you're talking about those events, Jason, you're talking about people who have already taken up the game sure. and become sufficiently accomplished at it to go and play in a tournament environment. There's an issue, though, before that, isn't there? You've got to get people getting to the club and putting a cue in their hand in the first place. Is there anything more that can be done to drive that? Or is it a case of just continually trying to build that shop window, that promotion of the game, and putting it on TV and giving people something to aspire to? It, it, it's really both sides. You can't just expect to put it on TV and expect that people will find snooker clubs. There's some great projects going on at the moment. One of the projects we've launched is WPBSA Club Finder. WPBSA coach finder. If there's any parent out there now and, and thinks, well, I wouldn't mind, you know, my, my son's always watching or my daughter's always watching the snooker. I wonder if there's a club around here. WPBSA.com, find a club. Put your postcode in. It will find the clubs in your area. It will also direct you to the coaches in your area. Who are the coaches? Which clubs do they work from? Where are the junior clubs? It's this kind of activity which we've been developing time and effort into. Uh, and that will, of course, give the opportunity but at the lower end of that it, it's really catching them young which which concerns me more than anything um today there is an, an amazing amount of opportunity out there for young people to do things um to play snooker maybe that's an effort maybe you have to go and find the snooker club but actually we should take the snooker to them it's all about cracking the schools and making sure that we have become a mainstream sport. In this country, we are a mainstream television sport, and in fact, one of the most successful sports in terms of our numbers, our broadcast hours, um, in the number of people watching on, on TV. But actually, we're not a mainstream sport when, when you walk into a school. When you walk into a school, you're given a rugby ball or a football or a tennis racket, and, and this really is, is a mould that, that we have to change by lobbying Parliament and lobbying those people in education who are in charge of those decisions. It's not joined up just yet, but we are making huge amounts of progress. And how does that work, Jason? Is it a case of schools tying in with local snooker clubs or do you go as far as trying to put a table or two into particular schools? It's a little bit of both. And one of the things we have done, we we have a small snooker table which goes into a school like a table tennis table. It folds up. And interestingly enough, it was a design that I played on when I was a young child. It was something my father made for me so that we could move the table out of the way and, and get the sofa out again, you know. Um so this this small table is 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 great and we've 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 run various projects with those popping up in town centres and popping up in schools. It's great, but it's it's getting the long term buy in through the education system that's important. We know that there are pathways for Olympic sports, you know, almost everywhere. Um, you know, if we were to become an Olympic sport, this would again be a game changer in terms of how we can develop the sport and bring young people through. So there's, there's a lifetime of work ahead of us 
you know, we may think we've done a lifetime of work to get to where we are today, but we are nowhere near where I think we should be. Yes, sir. Mark Selby is still to be beaten in the Scottish Open, only his second appearance, and he has successfully retained the title. From the 6th to the 12th of December, snooker's top stars return to venue Cymru in Clandidno as part of the Bet Victor Home Nation Series. Selected sessions are currently at half price. Book by the 31st of October at wst.tv forward slash tickets. That Olympic issue is something that's been around for a long time. It's at least 25 years since I first heard it being talked about that snooker could potentially be an Olympic sport. Everyone knows you personally have put a huge amount of time and effort into that. It hasn't happened yet. So where are we at now, Jason? Is it something that there needs to be a change of approach or are there just too many sports ahead of us in the queue? Not at all. There are a lot of sports. I mean, we, but we, in terms of, if you look at our global platform and the sheer scale of snooker, um, then we must be in line. If you look at where we were 25 years ago, and, and, and interestingly, one of the things I got involved in during my first term as chairman was how we could get onto that Olympic program. We took snooker to the World Games in Japan, and that was the first time that I actually felt that we were making this into a proper sport. Um, it, it, it felt to me that we'd taken it from something that was a social um, activity in local clubs into a sport, into an Olympic stadium. And it, and it felt good. And from that, it opened up a number of development opportunities in Asia. So the long-term benefit of doing it would be immense. Where, where we are with it now is we, we're part of a, of, a, of a process which involves other Q sports. And, and that, for me, complicates the issue slightly. And the reason being, it becomes a political issue. And in, in Q sports, that's hard to imagine politics getting in the way of anything, well, Jason. Look, we, we, that we, would never happen. We've would had it? our ups and downs you yeah. know, in, in the politics. I mean, yeah. I'm pleased to say now, I think in snooker, I mean, we, we're doing everything now, the WPUSA, from, from running. We're not just governing the professional tour. We're involved in the amateur game. We're involved in the world amateur game. We're involved in all the global qualifying that's going on. We do, we've got projects running all the time all over the world. What we want to do is have that freedom to be able to present to the IOC properly. In order to do that, we need change at the IOC level in how the sport is structured. Uh, that That is starting now again. We have been party to bids previously. The last, the last bid we came in the running for was really the Paris bid for 2024. Um, we did some work on that bid at the WPBSA, but in 2017, there was a change of power in the body that was looking after the bid. I was taken out of the loop. My team was taken out of the loop, having brought the bid to 2017 to its real critical moment. That, for me, was extremely disappointing. So Paris isn't going to happen. Where are we looking then? Is Los Angeles a possibility or are we already looking to Brisbane? Realistically, we're looking to Brisbane. Um, Los Angeles is a tall ask. You know, there's a lot of competition. There's also a long cycle of of meetings and a, and a lengthy process in order to get into that to that bid process to become one of those sports that can take up to seven years so where we need to be we need to be caught in brisbane right now 
Um, and we've already started talks with our federation and our friends um, in Australia. Where we're already a very well-recognised and well-established sport there. And of course, we've got great players. We've got Neil Roberts there. Well, I was going to say, I mean, surely Neil's such a great guy and he talks so well. And obviously he's been world champion, which did bring snooker back to the fore a bit in Australia to the extent we had a ranking event there for a few years. So surely he could be a really big asset from that point of view. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and, and what a great ambassador Neil is. I mean, you know, he's... Uh, he is he's just totally professional you know plies his trade you know he's dedicated disciplined and you know talented and entertaining i mean what more could we ask so he would be a great figurehead for us to take that forward it's a long way away but we need to be thinking now there's a big push in every sport nowadays to get more women involved and make them more high profile and that ties in with the Olympic bid, doesn't it? Because yeah. that sort of thing goes down very well from that point of view. So where are we at? Is it a case now of trying to grow the women's circuit and grow women's participation for its own sake? Or is the long-term vision that players will come through from that that will be good enough to make a really serious impact on the main professional tour? Yeah, I mean, again, it's, it's an exciting time in snooker um, because th- this has really never been tried and tested properly. Um, in terms of bringing men and women into the same field of play. Um, we've seen it in some other sports, but not at the level that we can do it. We we can put a man in the arena with a woman and they can compete together at the same level without a doubt. We took over um, women's snooker. It's always been there. There's always been a few women playing snooker and Mandy Fisher, who's done a fantastic job of keeping that going, came to us and said, look, we should, you know, we should work together. I know Mandy a long time. I said, you know what we should do? We should bring it into the fold. Let's make it better. Women's game's gone from maybe a dozen players to, you know, I think there's something like 70 or 80 players from about 20 different countries now. You know, that's a huge amount of progress in a short space of time. The top end of that, is definitely playing to this standard. So World Women's Snooker Tour now is now an official qualification process to the tour. We're doing that to create an environment to bring women in who perhaps may not have the facilities or may not want to. We can create a more enjoyable environment through the women's tour to bring them into the sport and we can increase those numbers. We've only got 128 places on the tour, but I think the, the women's numbers will continue to grow. We've seen some success with it. I talked about 2017 as part of that Olympic bid. We actually put the snooker event in the World Games, which was one of the test events for the Olympics, as a mixed gender event. What disappoints me is when, you know, some other Q sports want to fight against it and say, well, you can't do that. Well, we can do it and we are doing it and we're doing it right from the top at the highest level. I think it will pay dividends in the end for this sport and we should do it because it's the right thing to do to provide the opportunity for everyone. As they might say in a mafia movie, probably quite a bad mafia movie, let's talk Turkey, because the event that was due to be going on around now has been postponed. But I get the sense there's no need for anyone to panic about that, because I think Turkey are still very much on board, and it's just a case that it's going to be pushed back to later in the season. Yeah, you, you know, Turkey is such a wonderful Q-sports playing nation. Um, and, and there's some snooker there already, but um, they play a, a, a game called Three Cushion Billiards or Karam. And, and it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's a great game. It's a game full of skill. But, but actually, there's great interest. And it is one of our territories where people are actually watching snooker. And people don't actually know that because when Turkey was announced, everyone said, well, there's no real interest in the game there. But actually, it's one of these countries where following has been quietly building up because television has taken the game there. Yes, and, and we're seeing that really all over the world because our television, I mean, our television signal today reaches 1.6 billion homes around the world. 
in any sport in the world. These are incredible figures, really, in terms of the spread of our media. Uh, we're seeing growth year on year in all of our social media, all our digital media and digital channels. It's fantastic to see. Turkey is one of those of great interest. They're following it. We know they're on live scores. We know they're following on social media and we know they are watching it. Uh, and we know there are good players there. We've seen one or two players popping up here and there. So we know it's it's on the edge. We're, the location we were going is Antalya. Anybody who hasn't been there, when we can, book a holiday. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful destination, um, tourism, fantastic facilities and hotels. And I was really excited to to think that we could take our players there. Our players have had, I think, a hard time over the last few years. And I know a lot of people have. The last the last sort of 18 months through lockdown has been um you know tough. We we've had these really tight, secure bubbles. Uh, Mark, you know you've been you, you know you've been in and around the sport these tight bubbles where people are turning up, being tested, being quarantined, then sent into a room with a snooker table, a referee and and, and cameraman. And then go go back, back into quarantine room or back out. It's been going on like this. I can't thank our players enough for how they've handled that in, on a weekly basis uh, and allowed us to c c continue to keep this tour running. I know they're thankful for what we've done as an organisation to keep them working and keep them busy. But again, you know, I'm thankful for what they've done. I so desperately wanted to take them to this resort and to go, we're back. We're back out there. The frustrating thing, of course, is no matter how much effort you make and no matter how much the players got on board, some things in the world we're in at the moment are just beyond anyone's control, really. And one of those is Saudi Arabia. Now, we were due originally to be heading in around now to the second staging of this massive new event. Where are we at with that? Is that going to happen at some point? Again, uh, you know, post-COVID, lots of things are being, are being um, we, we use the term, the can's being kicked down the road a little bit. We, the, you know, lots of dates are moving constantly. The Turkey is an example, um, the forest fires and, and everything else that's been going on there. We're disappointed to move it, but we're moving it and we're going to deliver it. It's the same with Saudi Arabia. I, I mean, the Middle East is an incredible location for snooker. Um, and even all the way across into some of the African territories. It's amazing, really, what's actually going on in this sport. I mean, I've, I've, been, um, I've been to events, you know, in this part of the world, and the standard is so high. And there are so many players that it's inevitable that, that we're going to see some real progress. And it's just a case of we just need to put one marker down one big major marker and deliver something spectacular and that's what the Saudi Arabian event is about so excited to be to be going there um and we you know we look forward to when we can and we're subject to controls travel government policies you know it's it's with the difficulties that have been going on in the world it's hard for us to say well we need to deliver the event there are bigger problems yeah, hopefully that'll happen sooner rather than later because it did seem like a spectacular event in the offing. Now, Jason, when the players come on here, I subject them to what's called the quickfire round. Now, you used to be a player, so you have to go through it as well. This is where I just give you a few subjects and you say whatever comes into your head. And it can be one word or one sentence or a few sentences, whatever you think <laughs> at all. So let's go. Controversial break-off shots. Oh, it's got to be Mark Williams, isn't it? That's yeah. the word that comes to mind. But is it something that the WPBSA would look to address or have they moved on Not from that at now? all. You know, it's a fair break off. Um, if he wants to play that, it doesn't slow the game down. It, it may it may just add one shot to the whole frame because the next shot you have to clip off the pack, move the reds and go back to Bork or wherever. No issue with me at all. Highlight of your playing days. Oh, wow. 
that's really tough. I know this is quick fire, but oh, there are so many great times. And I suppose, um, I mean, walking out of the crucible has to be one of those moments you always think back. Um, but, but, but highlights for me, my personal biggest highlight, and the, the thing that really felt me, that really meant the most to me was the day I, I, t- I turned professional. It was my 21st birthday. My family were with me. Um, I'd been behind in all the matches in that in those qualifying rounds and eventually got through late at night. And uh, for me, that was the culmination of an incredible commitment and a lot of work that had gone in, not just from me, but my family as well. The shoes out. I love it as a one-off. Um, again, we're mixing it up. It's fun. It's great. The thing I love about the shootout, the camaraderie, the laughing, the joking. When I start to see the players uh, mixing and 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 really enjoying the fun. Slow play. Oof, dear. Slow play. The shot clock. There's the thing that comes into my head. People say, "Are we going to bring the shot clock?" No, we don't need a shot clock. What we did need to do was monitor the average shot time. We've done that. We've put it on a system. We're now managing the average shot times. The average shot time is coming down and down and down and down because people know we're monitoring it. It's not a problem at the moment. And I might get a blank look here if this isn't true. The rumour that you once owned a bike repair shop. Ah, well, it, I, I owned a business that had a bike repair shop. Um, well, I owned a, it was. A, I guess you would call it, um, I mean, I had a, 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 it was an automotive business it was in you know in, in automotive parts and we used to deliver to garages and things like that but it also had a cycle it also had a cycle shop and a cycle repair shop yes. okay so that's a yes i think on that yeah, one yeah yeah, yeah i guess yeah. it was true let's look to the future then and it's a new future now isn't it because you mentioned barry hearn a lot there and he's moved on now i know he's still involved in the background there but steve dawson is the new chairman of world snooker i get the sense it's going to be business as usual Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, Barry, Barry's um, been in the background for, you know, a, a good while now. You know, he, he's been there. He's still outspoken. He still comes to talk to us. Steve Dawson, if we, if we were on the quick fire round, class is the word I would use. Um, he's a very classy guy. He's a great operator. Um, you know, he's, uh, he's just the quality that we need in the middle of, in the middle of the organization. What we have got, we've got the same team around us that's been running the sport for the last 10 years. And uh, long may it continue. You mentioned Mandy Fisher there. Now, I think she's been chair for 40 years, something like that. You've reached 11 years now, which you know, isn't bad in itself. So how much longer do you see yourself going on in the oh, world? Surely you're not going to get to 40. Oh, do, you know, I, do you know, Mike, if I could say one thing to you. When I, walk, when I walked into the first time I ever saw a snooker table was in a Butlins holiday camp. I was young, 10, 11, 12, whatever it was. I walked in there and I saw a snooker table and a room. And what this game that was going on, I was completely mesmerised. I still feel the same today when I walk out of there. I love this sport so much. I think when the passion goes would be the time for anybody to go. Um, at this moment, I, I still have such a sense of unfinished business and things that I think we can do with this sport. Well, let's say you manage to do another 11 years before bowing out. If I could give you one wish, Jason, for snooker and where it'll be in another 11 years' time, what would you go for? I, I want to take us to the Olympic Games. Okay, I think that's a fitting place to finish. Thanks so much as ever, Jason. It's always fascinating to listen to you. And we wish you all the best with whatever lies ahead in your role as chairman. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast, the highest ranked player in the game under the age of 30, as Kyron Wilson reflects, among so many other things, on his run to the 2020 
World Championship final. Off the back of having about two, three hours sleep and then being woken up by a fire alarm that morning, I felt absolutely exhausted. The first session, I was just non-existent for that final. And, you know, going forward, that really has taught me a lot, sort of how to deal with getting to that last phase because... I think one of the famous quotes that Stephen Hendry said was, even even though you're at the semi-finals and you're only two matches away, in terms of frames that you need to win, you're actually only halfway there. And going into the final, that really hit home because you know I was absolutely shattered. So that's coming up next week on the World Snooker Tour podcast. Until then, thanks so much for listening and goodbye.